Our Bible reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 12 and it can be found on page 9 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 12, commencing at verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So Abram went as the Lord had told him and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram travelled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Moray at Shechem. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Then Abram set out and continued toward the Negev. Our second reading, if you flip over the page, comes from Genesis chapter 15. Again, commencing at verse 1. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Well, friends, uh, good morning. Uh, My name's Pete Stedman, Senior Minister here at Norwest. Uh, Very excited that we're starting our new sermon series. I trust you are as well. Now, today, uh, we're going to start with a short quiz no, I'm not joking. So take out your new sheets, please. With your, uh, take out your sheets you received on your way in. Open it up. You'll see there under the first heading uh, a space provided in your outline where I've marked Adam and Eve up the top and Jesus Christ down the bottom. See that? Okay, I'm going to give you 30 seconds. I'm serious. 30 seconds to write down all the events you can think of, the historical events that occurred between Adam and Eve And Jesus, is that clear? Your time starts now. No cheating. 
If you don't know any, just scribble something. It looks like you know what you're doing. Okay, time's up. Now, if you can swap that with the person next to you, we're going to mark them. No, we're not. No, no, we're not going to do that. Now, why on earth did we do that? Three reasons. Three reasons. Number one, to show you how limited many of us are when it comes to the Old Testament. That's my expectation. See, here's how I think it works. I think most of us have a pretty solid understanding of Genesis 1 to 3, that's creation and the fall and Adam and Eve. We've got a a solid grasp of that. Uh, When it comes to Jesus, who he is, why he came, what he did, I think we're excellent by and large. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. We're not bad on Paul's letters either, Romans, Corinthians and so on. But we are by and large pretty weak on the Old Testament, it seems to me. Adam and Eve, good. Jesus, great. It's just there's 900 pages in between, 1,800 years of history, 38 books of the Bible that we're a little weak on. First reason. Second, I want you to look at everything you wrote down on your list, the one, two, ten things you wrote. Now, maybe you wrote Noah and the Flood, the Tower of Babel, David and Goliath, oh, that one. Daniel and the Lion's Den, Gideon and the Fleece, all the big ones probably came out, right? Now, we know, don't we, that every story that you've written there, look at them, points to Jesus, right? You do know that, right? How do we know that? Because that's what Jesus himself said when he was teaching his disciples how to understand the Old Testament. Really? I don't know where that is. Well, let me show you. He says it twice, both in Luke 24. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explains them what was said in all the scriptures. There's no New Testament at this time. He's only talking about the Old Testament. In all the scriptures concerning himself. A few verses later, Jesus said to his disciples, this is what I told you while I stood with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms. His way of saying in the whole Old Testament. Paul himself says it in uh, 2 Corinthians 1. Paul says this, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Here's my question to you. Look at your list. In what ways do those stories that you know, that you wrote down, point to Jesus? Do you know the answer to that? Okay, third reason, and it is linked to the second. You will know that the Bible at one level is a very sophisticated book. It's over a 1,000 pages long. The earliest and the latest parts of the Bible were written about 1,800 years apart, written by around 40 different authors in different contexts, different places to different people and in vastly different styles. And yet, despite all of this, the Bible tells one story over and over and over again. The story of God's relentless efforts to reverse the effects of human sinfulness and to bring in a new creation. Or to put it the way my daughter's Bible puts it, my seven-year-old daughter's Bible puts it, it's the story of God's never stopping, never giving up, or unbreaking, always and forever love. So despite the Bible being this complex book at one level, it is also a remarkably simple book if you can catch on to and take hold of the one idea that runs through the whole. Look at what you wrote down, please. Look at what you wrote down. 
Do you know how all those things weave together to tell one story? Do you know how those things you wrote down all sing together from the same song sheet? Well, brothers and sisters, welcome to Genesis. God is faithful. A sermon series where over nine weeks we're going to start to see these lines being drawn, where we'll start to see this one clear story emerge from every story. A series where my prayer is that no matter how many promises God has made, we all come to see that they are yes in Christ. It's going to be great. Let's pray. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that as we now come to sit under your word, perhaps a part of your word that we are less familiar with, you will prepare our hearts, you will soften our hearts, you will engage our minds that we might see your ways, your glory, your truth so clearly that we might love your Son even more. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, just before, I said that the Bible tells one story, right? Cover to cover. Now, if that were true, if that were true, then we would be right to expect the same sort of ideas that we know from the parts of the Bible that we're familiar with to come up in the parts of the Bible that we're not familiar with. Right? Doesn't that make sense? If the Bible tells one main story over and over again in place after place, then surely what we know about God and his world from the parts we're familiar with will also come up in the parts of the Bible we're not familiar with. Well, friends, that is exactly the case. You might have heard people say that the God in the Old Testament is just completely different from the God in the New Testament. It's just not true. And so today, at the very beginning of our sermon series, at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 12 to 15, we're going to see three things, none of them surprising, because we know them to be true from other parts of the Bible that are more familiar to us. Here's what we're going to see. You ready? We're going to see this. We're going to see that God is the God of all people. We're going to see that Abraham is a man of trust and dust. And we're going to see that salvation is an act of God and God alone, okay? God, Abraham, salvation. Let's have a look at this together. You know, uh, it's true to say that every word of the Bible is God's word to us, and we are to receive it as such. But it is also true to say that there are some passages in the Bible that cast longer shadows over what is to come in the Bible than others. See, not all verses do that. So, for example, this is Proverbs 30. 15, the leech has two daughters. Give, give, they cry. Did you know about the leech? Two daughters, no sons. Two daughters, not three. Did you know that? Can I say, this is a very important verse in Proverbs 30. But this is not a verse that casts a long shadow over what comes after, which is why you've probably never heard it before. Very helpful verse in Proverbs 30, but there it has quite a localised meaning and significance. I'm happy to speak to you about it later because it's very helpful actually. But today we stumble across a verse which arguably casts the longest shadow in the whole Bible. We find a promise today made right at the beginning of the Bible that is the promise 
that's been kept at the end of the Bible and even today. You could say that the promise we're going to see today is the foundational promise of the whole Bible and the promise out of which every other promise grows. And you'll see it in Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. Please have a look. Genesis 12, verses 1 to 3. We read this. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And what we learn, friends, is that there are three parts of this promise that are going to reach out across the rest of the whole Bible and beyond. We're not going to unpack all of this today. But all through this series, you're going to hear James and myself referring back to Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3, because this is where it all begins. And in this foundational promise that God makes to a man named Abram, there are three parts. God is going to bring blessing to Abram. God is going to make Abram into a great nation. And God is going to bring Abram into a land that he will live in forever. Three parts, blessing, nation, land. And this promise of God to Abram in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, arcs all the way across the Bible to the very end, shaping everything that we understand along the way and even informing our prayers as we pray for Jesus to return today. But today, this morning, I just want to focus in on one aspect of this, and it's, it's this. You know, from the very beginning of the Bible, we see that God is the God of all people. Now, you might be sitting there thinking, well, big deal. <laughs> you know why that is, right? It's because you are all people. You're the included, so of course it's great for you. You're okay with that. But just remember what we saw in Mark's gospel on page after page after page. The Pharisees were incensed when Jesus said that God was for all. No, that can't be right. Yahweh Almighty was the God of Israel, not the filthy, unclean pagans. But Jesus said, no. And this is why he did. Can you look carefully at Genesis 12, verse 3? Verse 3. God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Do you see what that's saying? That is saying that God's intention from the very beginning of the world was to bring his blessing, his favor and grace upon all people through one man. Here, through Abram. People were going to find that they themselves would access the blessings of God, uh, the forgiveness, mercy, and grace of God as they related to Abram. Which means that Jesus was right when he loved the Syro-Phoenician woman in Mark 15. Remember that? The one he called a dog? And it means the Pharisees were wrong. The reason for that was because Jesus knew his Bible. And the experts in the Bible did not. Yeah, well, big deal. God's for all people. We know that. Friends, it is a big deal. It's actually a huge deal. And let me just point out one implication of many. You need to know that today there is an increasing hostility from our world towards the idea of Christian mission. There's a growing proportion of people out there who find it completely offensive uh, that Christians would have this mindset that you would go out and speak to people who don't know Jesus and seek to, to have them turn to him. I mean, how dare you assert that your culture is superior to ours? 
Don't believe me? Uh, Let me read you a part of an article that comes from the Sydney Morning Herald, written 10 years ago. Violence is a long-accepted occupational hazard of Christian missionaries. But modern postings are more about charitable and social works than proselytizing. Ali Gripart reports. Now, as most of you know, to proselytize is to seek conversion. Most churches have revamped their approach. Their sensitive humanitarian stance is light years from colonial times when they set out deliberately to convert the heathen. The old idea of holding a Bible in your hand and converting people is dead and gone, says Eric Sharp, Emeritus Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Sydney. The whole ideology of a Christian missionary convert heathens bowing to wooden statues is wildly out of date, Sharp says. No one in their right mind would believe such sentiments anymore. Uh, Let me be crystal clear on this point. Our team that went up to Wickham went up to see people convert to Jesus. Nathan and Sophie McGrath, chapelainers who have just returned from Rwanda, went over there because they longed to see people stop bowing to statues. Sarah Jarmaine has just returned from four weeks in Fiji to encourage people to turn away from idols and to turn back to Jesus. In three weeks, I fly to Malawi, four, three weeks, sorry, Zimbabwe, four, three weeks, where I'll be teaching pastors how to help people lead people to Jesus. I quote, The whole ideology of a Christian missionary converting heathens bound to wooden statues is wildly out of date, even 10 years ago, Sharp said. No one in their right mind would believe such sentiments anymore. We must be out of our minds, and maybe we are, with the Apostle Paul, for that is exactly what we do, graciously, kindly and humbly, We proclaim the life and death of the God who is for all people. Do you know why he's for all people? It's because from the very beginning, God set his affections upon all his creation. It's because God has elected people from every tribe, nation, people and tongue to sing his praises. And here's the thing. We actually see it all the way through the Bible. This is not a New Testament idea. Yes, God loved Israel, but did you know he also loved Melchizedek? Pagan. Ruth? Pagan. Rahab? Pagan. The city of Nineveh? Pagan. Naaman the Syrian? Pagan. Job? Pagan. The queen of Sheba? Pagan. The Syrophoenician woman? Pagan. The Gerasene demoniac? Pagan. The centurion at the foot of the cross? Pagan. You? Probably a pagan. God is the God of all people from the very beginning. Let's turn to the second thing we see, and that's to do with Abram. Now remember, we're seeing things here that we see across the whole Bible. They might be new to us here, but we know them to be true, right? And here's the second thing we see. Abram is a man of trust and dust. Now what on earth does that mean? I wonder if you've ever heard a sermon series in a church on great heroes in the Bible or Biblical characters of faith, where essentially the sermon looks at someone like Abraham or Moses or Noah or Paul or Peter and essentially says, be like them, emulate their faith. Here's why we never do that here. It is because the closer you look at every biblical character, the less heroic they look. What you'll actually find with every godly biblical character is that they have these soaring moments of remarkable faith in God. And then just alongside that, they have sickening and 
confusing distrust of and sin towards God. And Abram's no, no different. So Genesis 12 verse 1, have a look at that. Genesis 12 verse 1. We read this, don't we? God came to Abram and said, Go from your country, your people and your father's household to the land I'll show you. God says to Abram, Pack up everything and walk away. Walk away from family, from heritage, from history, from property. Verse 4, look at that. Genesis 12 verse 4. It says this, So Abram went. That This man, on the basis of hearing God's word, obeys. He leaves all behind to follow. Sort of like the fishermen on the beach who Jesus calls to follow him. You know, they drop their nets and just leave. It's this wonderful picture in Abram of faith in and trust of God's word. Or look at now Genesis 13, 8 and 9. Okay, so background here, we see Abram and one of his traveling party, it's actually his nephew Lot, they part ways. See, conflict has arisen between the men of Abram and the men of Lot. And Abram, you've got to understand, owns all the land he can see. And then Abram says to Lot this, he says, look, Let's not have any quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and mine, for we're brothers. Is not the whole land before you? Let's part company. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Abram, who owns all the land, says to his nephew Lot, who owns none of it, take what you want. You want this? Go that way, it's yours. You want this? Go that way, it's yours. The reason Abram can say it is he has such deep trust in God's promise that God is going to give him land upon land upon land. This guy, Abram, is a true biblical hero. Just don't read Genesis 12, 10 to 20, where Abram lies to Pharaoh and his wife ends up as uh, one of the ladies in Pharaoh's harem. Oops. Don't read that. Don't read Genesis 15, 2 and 3, actually, either where Abram almost blasphemously questions God's promises to him. Don't read that. Certainly don't read Genesis 16, 3 and 4, where Abram has sex with another woman to try to keep his lineage going to try to have a son because he doesn't trust God's promise. Don't read that because this man's a hero. No, he's not. This man is human. This man is like every person of faith in the Bible. A man of great trust in God and a man of moments of great foolishness and betrayal of God. Shouldn't be surprised. Abram just reminds me of Peter. Peter, the rock upon whom the church would be built. Peter, who stood before the crowds at Pentecost and so clearly proclaimed the gospel. Peter, who before the cock crowed, denied his friend, his saviour, his lord, three times. Trust. Dust. In fact, Abram reminds me of me and you, of anyone today who walks with the Lord. For isn't it true that we have these moments of trust in God? Don't we, don't we do this? Where we make calls for our families, ourselves, our work, our finances, that the world would think to be insane, but we do it out of great love for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. And yet, isn't it not true as well that those moments of great faith are sometimes separated but by a hair of faithlessness and doubt and foolishness and sin. Friends, I'm encouraged that one of the greatest heroes in the Bible, Abram, is just like me and you. Loves his God, yet feet of clay. 
The fact is, there's only one man in the whole Bible worthy of emulation, honor, and hero status, and it is Jesus Christ, as you know, the Son of God, who at the moment of his greatest trial and tribulation, strung up on a Roman cross, was able to cry out, Father, not curse them, but Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. That is heroic. That's divine. The rest of us are just trust and dust. Well, one final thing I'd love us all to see, and it's this very New Testament idea that absolutely finds its roots growing deeply into the soil that is the first few chapters of Genesis, and that is this. It is that salvation is an act of God and God alone. Now, here's the thing. If you've been here at Norwest Anglican for some time, this idea that salvation is an act of God and God alone will be very familiar to you, for we preach it every week. The reason we do that is because we know, the Bible tells us, that sin is such a pervasive and powerful and enslaving reality. And because we're all descendants of Adam, and therefore we've all inherited Adam's sin, that there is this great distance between us and God that no church attendance, no acts of charity, no good works can ever cover. We believe what the Bible tells us, that we're stuffed, we're dead, we're perishing, we're lost, we're blind, we're in the dark. And that the perfect, holy, righteous God is a long way from us. We believe that. And yet what we preach is that, what we see in the New Testament is that because of God's great love for us, God comes near to us in the person of Jesus. He comes as a person to live for people and to die for people. And he does this swap with us. Remarkable. He takes our sin and dies and he gives us his perfection and righteousness so that we might live. So this is how Paul puts it. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's that great reversal. And despite every one of us wanting to think that we've worked our way to God, we're good enough, we're nice enough, we're moral enough. No, no, no. The New Testament is at pains to point out that we do nothing. Here's another way Paul puts it. But when the kindness and love of God our Saviour appeared, he saved us. Why? Well, not because of righteous things that we've done, but because of his mercy. God saved you if you know his son, not because of how good you are, but in spite of the fact that you're not. Now, my point is that if you're a regular here at Norwest, you know this, because the New Testament says this, and we preach this week in, week out. Salvation is an act of God and God alone. No new ideas here. But it is easy to think that this is a New Testament idea, right? Because this isn't in the Old Testament, is it? No, in the Old Testament, to be right with God, it was about religion, remember? sacrifices at the temple, obeying the law, keeping the Sabbath, eating the right foods, and, and, and. Right? You were saved by God in the Old Testament as you were moral and upright and obedient. Right? Wrong. And the key verse for this is Genesis 15, 6. Bit of background here. Abraham is getting wobbly on the promises God has made. This is one of his low points, not high. This is Abram of dust, not trust. And Abram says to God, really? You're going to give me children? I just can't see that. God says, come with me. I'm going to show you. I'm going to give you a son who will come from your own flesh. And then God takes him outside and looks up and shows Abram the stars. He says to him, see those stars? You're going to have more kids than that, mate. And then we read this crucial verse, 15.6. Have a look at this. Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord credited 
it to him as righteousness. Now, don't miss what that is saying. God has spoken to Abram and made a promise to him for the future. Abram believes God's promise, trusts God's word, has faith in God. And then we read that God credited it to him as righteousness. Now, do you you see what that's saying? What that's saying is that on account of Abram merely, simply, only believing God's promise, God's word, God looked at Abram and saw him as blameless, guiltless. God looked at Abram and saw Abram as his. And friends, this is the key passage that informs the rest of the Bible on this idea of salvation or coming to be right with God, being an act of God and God alone. Some people call this justification by faith alone. This stunning new idea that Jesus brings into the Gospels is not a new idea at all. It is the way that God from the very beginning has drawn people to himself by faith alone. And here's why it's important. Please listen to this. What it tells you is that that small, gnawing and incessant voice in your head and in your heart that tells you that you're not good enough, that tells you that you haven't done enough, that tells you you're not holy enough, that tells you that your sin is too much, that your past is too black, that your future too uncertain, that your family too messy, your mental health too unstable, to possibly ever know and feel like you belong to God. Genesis 15 verse 6 promises that those things in your head and heart are lies. They're lies. The question the whole Bible asks of you and me is this. Do you trust the promises of God? Do you believe that Jesus Christ is the one who lived and died the death you should have? Do you trust in Jesus enough to call on him as your saviour and Lord? If the answer is yes, then like Abram who believed God and was credited as righteous, you too. God has done it all. The fact is in Genesis 15, 6, Abram had no idea how that worked. We do. Because you know that Jesus died as a substitutionary sacrifice on the cross in your place. And on your behalf. That's what Paul tells us in Ephesians 2. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourself. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Paul knew Genesis 15, 6. Brothers and sisters, you have to know, you have to know that God is faithful. He's faithful to himself, he's faithful to his promises, and he's faithful to us. And the whole Bible tells the story of how he will relentlessly act and love to remove the effects of sin and to establish a new creation. And every page of the Bible sings his story. It's going to be a wonderful series. Let's pray. Good and gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the parts of the Bible that come alive before our eyes at times. 
where we see your consistent character, grace and love on page after page. Father, will you give us a renewed love for your son that we might abandon ourselves more and more to him. That we might know that because Jesus has done everything that is required of us, that merely as we trust in him, we are made righteous. And may that change the way we live and speak and parent and be married and work and be the church. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.